the first state, the diamond state, home of President Joe Biden, the world's corporate capital. Delaware is known for a lot of things, but its identity can't be painted with a broad brush. There are three counties, each with its own unique character, and within each, towns, neighborhoods, and individuals with their own ideas about what it means to be a Delawarean. This season, the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A More Perfect Union, explores the concept of identity, what draws us together as a state, what keeps us apart, and how we can ensure all perspectives are heard. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. This fifth and final episode in our examination of identity and community in the first state looks at history and stories, specifically how we can learn more about Delaware and its identity by looking more closely at the stories of all the individuals and communities throughout the state. For this conversation, we are joined by Ruth Ann Purchase, Cultural Mapping Program Manager for the Lenape Census District in Delaware and Director and Co-Founder of the Lenape Land Trust. We're also joined by Hanif Salam, Manager of the ACLU of Delaware's Campaign for Smart Justice. Ruth Ann, Hanif, thanks to both of you for being here with us today on the A More Perfect Union podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So I want to start with this question, and it's, it's a pretty broad question, but um, how incomplete is Delaware's story? And by that, I mean, how much do you feel is missing based on the kind of lack of inclusion of stories of a variety of people and communities? And, and Ruthann, do, do you want to take that first? Sure. Since I uh, work with the first people of the first state, um, you know, I tend to think about history in terms of thousands of years and even tens of thousands of years, the human relationship with the river. But when we think about the state itself as the first state to ratify the Constitution, we do have a bunch of missing pieces in the relationship of the original people of this land to those who founded the state as a governing body. So that's a big piece of many people's stories. And uh, because the original people are still here, they're still with us, and they have worked so hard to document who they are and uh, prove that to the federal government Mm -hmm. and the state government in order to have a census district and protection for their ethnic identity. Um, they've worked so hard to be included and it would be so beautiful to make more safe spaces for more stories. Hanif, how about you? I mean, where, where do you feel like there's, 
there's pieces missing to the Delaware story where we're, we're not inclusive enough to, to hear the entire story. Yes, definitely. Uh, that's an excellent question. And I, I think um, a couple of things that come to my mind when I say what's miss, when I think of what's missing from the Delaware story, um, one with us being the first state, I don't think we really talk about how we are often last in the country when it comes to progressive reform or progressive legislation, right? Uh, you know, myself and my family have been celebrating the Juneteenth holiday this weekend. But it's interesting to know that Delaware was actually one of the last states to ratify and accept the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment and ratify it into state constitution, right? Which leaves a lot to understand about racial tensions in the state that I think is oftentimes overlooked or wanting to get swept under the rug. I think another big missing piece to the story is the contribution of African-Americans in the state. A lot of people don't understand that Lewis Redden is from right here in Wilmington, Delaware who was one of the lead lawyers in Brown versus education and one of the key uh, 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 individuals involved in ensuring that the education system was segregated and that all people had an opportunity to get a good education. We don't understand that the Clifford Brown Jazz Festival was going on this week right here in Delaware, but Clifford Brown was probably one of the most influential uh, musicians to the jazz industry and not just because of his music ability, but because of his desire to live a clean and sober life at a time where an industry was full of drug use and drinking, where people thought that helped them to perform. So I think Delaware could do better in showing the history and talking about the story of all cultures, especially those of, of black and brown people that have contributed to the state. So, so you both kind of mentioned communities that that maybe don't get their full story told. Uh, are there specific, other communities you feel don't get their stories told or is there are there more to the stories that you're talking about that you feel are are significantly left out? I mean, Kenny, if you, you mentioned a few things in particular, uh, but are, are, is there some other areas you feel people just really don't know about uh, that should know about if they really want to understand what Delaware is. And, and with that, I'll give you a chance to kind of weigh in and, and then Hanif can come back. Yeah, that, that's a great uh, follow-up question, Tom. And I'll just add that, um, in my opinion, it is, and this is my opinion, it does not reflect those uh, uh, producing this podcast or my employer at ACLU of Delaware. But in my opinion, the Delaware way is about uh, uh, exemplifying and highlighting the contributions of white males in Delaware. I think we overlook women. I think we overlook a lot of non-white individuals uh, when we talk about our history and the Delaware way. So in that, I think it ex it's very exclusive and you only really know about a lot of white males who have contributed to our story. Ruthann, how about you? Well, um, the question takes me a little bit by surprise because I do, you know, really focus on one segment of the Delaware story. But I would imagine that 
it's possible the Air Force Base has had an incredible influence on our region. And so many people retire from the Air Force to the Dover region that have stories to tell from the whole world. But, but there is a unique aspect of governing a small state with a huge Air Force base. And how do we train the next generation of elected officials if they don't know the stories of what that's like? And, and then taking that um, a step further, um, our capital city, Dover, Delaware, was laid out by William Penn. And uh, I, I, honor, I honor Martin Luther King Jr. greatly. And I studied uh, conflict analysis in South Africa where they taught me more about Martin Luther King than I ever heard before. But it's still a little heartbreaking when, when the William Penn name was removed from that portion of the street in Dover in order to honor Martin Luther King. I really believe the story of the um, original Quakers and their struggle to maintain their faith traditions in our region um, is a story that could help us understand a lot of other uh, religious persecution, refugees of religious wars that have come to this country. Uh, the, the Quakers were refugees of religious war. And of course they have trauma and they were also persecuted for believing that women and men are equal. Um, they may not have known how to express uh, equity in their era, but they knew it was a spiritual principle they were going to abide by. And uh, also that all life is sacred. They were persecuted for believing the Lenape are sacred you know, with the same divine spirit as every other living being. So there's so much for us to learn about religious freedom in the United States, and especially right here at home, mm -hmm. where William Penn laid out the city of Dover. Um, so I'm curious about, about more um, history related to the Quakers and their relationship with the indigenous people and all other refugees of war who came here seeking asylum for so many generations. So those are two ideas I have. I'm sure I'd come up with some more <laughs> if you gave me a minute. <laughs> well, what I'm curious, I'll move on. And I thank you for that because I think that this is kind of what we're trying to get at is there's, there's a lot of different pieces that, you know, each of us is maybe not aware of uh, and, and it's important to, to hear where those pieces are and, and where we can learn more. And, and I guess you know, my next question kind of goes to what's the impact of all that? So when we talk about these different voices that aren't heard, this kind of incompleteness of the Delaware story and identity, what, what do you feel are some of the practical impacts uh, of, of not having those stories told? And you know, how does that affect the way we operate with each other in communities, way we govern, economics. I mean, is, do you feel like there's there's some real impacts to not knowing and understanding these stories? Absolutely. I'll just reiterate that if we don't um, educate ourselves, uh, we won't have well-educated elected officials. 
So our next generations need to understand these stories in order to steward them well and make more equitable life in Delaware possible. And within, I, I'm curious if, if you feel like that lack of knowledge and understanding played a specific role in how difficult it has been for the Lenape to get the recognition that, that they have started to receive. They're, they're starting to get some land back. I mean, is, is the ongoing education moving that ball forward? And, and was the lack of, of knowledge and education what kind of held things up? Well, it wasn't just a lack of education. It was misinformation, you know, lit- literal denial of the existence. And then I, I want to make a big, generous statement now. From my perspective, from my research, it was necessary to say there are no Native Americans left in order to stop the genocide at a certain point in the history of our region. So those who chose to, you know, put up monuments like there's one at Longwood Gardens saying the last of the Lenape, you know, because they chose to say there are none left and the assimilation has been completed or the forced removal has been completed, that reduced the violence toward the people. Mm-hmm. And it is a very sad way to reduce violence, to deny that the people exist. <laughs> so that catapults us into another um, legacy that that recognizing there is still fear of the other there are still trauma triggers between people groups that still limit our freedom to share these stories. So having, you know, the last um, governor's wife adopted trauma-informed services and trauma-informed education for a reason. We need to recognize some people have been traumatized And the oppressors, the descendants of oppressors, are afraid of retaliation. So I'm just being blunt here. I studied in South Africa. I can't help it. (laughs) I also studied uh, in Northern and Southern Ireland. And I was on the Turkish-Syrian border. So I've had this incredible privilege just working with different nonprofit agencies, learning about conflict analysis and trauma transformation. And we don't say conflict resolution anymore. Because our conflicts are not resolved. They are transformative. We carry them with us with new forms of education, new forms of awareness. And that is a part of civics education to recognize conflicts have existed. The more honest we are about them, the more we can learn to live together well. And Hanif, how about on your end of things? Where do you see some of the, the lack of of knowledge, a lack of understanding, lack of education about stories that, that we haven't heard playing out in terms of, of a, a real impact on, on how people's day-to-day lives are affected. Definitely, definitely. I can uh, uh, agree with, with uh, Ruth Ann that it, it definitely has uh, 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 impacted oppressed people and creates and allows for systems of oppression to continue to exist. 
Um, one of the things I found is that the number one technique in oppressing a people is to erase their history and not allow them to have access to it. So if we are only telling the Delaware way that only focuses on one facet of the story and keeps highlighting the same elements over and over, sometimes having to lie about the existence of a people to keep them safe. That speaks volumes and not only allows for systems of oppression to exist, but to Ruth Ann's point, that trauma and that fear of retaliation brings about unspoken tension, right? This is why we may see incidents in Delaware where there may be, you know, uh, uh, race riots, right, or, or, or large crowd fights. This not might not just necessarily be young people who are looking for trouble. This is some of that untreated trauma and um, some of that unsaid tension, because it's not always just a race issue, right? You know, we uh, Ruth Ann highlighted religious freedoms, right? We don't really express the stories of the Quakers, which is an excellent point, up and down the state, the impact that they had, right? Or others. We could probably sit here and think and name many non-white, non-Christian groups who have had an impact on Delaware, but when we fail to share those stories, we allow the systems of oppression to stay in place, and we allow those tensions amongst the residents of Delaware to continue to exist and rise. So with all of that in mind, what are the avenues to tell these stories? What, what, are, what, what do you see as ways that we, as a society here in Delaware, can illuminate these stories, make them part of the conversation, and maybe start to address some of these issues of, of trauma and tension uh, by making things more inclusive? I'll, say, I'll just start and say that, for one, um, I think that we should get back to promoting conflict resolution. And not only have we not used the term, in my opinion, I am seeing a decrease on the emphasis from utilizing trauma-informed care when treating people who have been traumatized. That should be a best practice in Delaware. That should be an element of majority, or if not all of the services provided. I think another major thing that we can do is begin to share everybody's history and cultures within our education system. If you pick up a textbook, our, our textbooks are still very, very dated in the history and the stories that they're sharing with our students. So much so that last year, Delaware made it a law that black history curriculums have to be adopted by the uh, public school systems in Delaware, which we really still haven't seen an increase in new curriculums and information being shared. And not only black history, but in the schools, we should be teaching our children about all of the residents and all of their cultures that have been impactful and that currently exist in our state. Ruth Ann? Yeah. Um, I chose a model that I found in Canada called Creative Cities Cultural Mapping. And I took their 75-page handbook, I distilled it down to a 10-page fill-in-the-blank, and then started working with the Lenape community at Cheswold, 
And we developed a format for collecting information, oral histories. Um, we have documented a cemetery right behind Del Tech in Kent County where the three Delaware Bay tribes are shown to have intermarried very early on. And so all three Delaware Bay tribes claim this as their sacred common ground. What a wonderful place to bring people together where those divisions have to fall away. You know, the, the original people were divided and conquered and divided and conquered. And some still practice divide and conquer because it's the only power structure they ever saw work. And now I'm kind of quoting Paulo Freire when I, when I say that. And I, I want to give him some credit because he really has informed how we heal from that divide and conquer mentality. But being in that cemetery and finding the direct descendants of those gravestones and working with Delaware Humanities Forum, they funded my very, well, it's not the forum anymore, Delaware Humanities. They funded my very first grant to start um, bringing people together and creating documentation of our cultural mapping program. And I also have to thank uh, Barry Joyce, who is helping to develop curriculum with Delaware's teachers to correct the history books and to be more inclusive. And just on Saturday, I got to meet with about, I don't know, maybe 40 teachers and hear all their stories of how they're creating curriculum that is more inclusive from various new immigrant standpoints and then Chief Coker, Chief um, Carmine from the Millsboro Nanticoke, and Kara Bloom, who's an anthropologist and historian, and others have been helping those teachers incorporate Lenape and Nanticoke stories into the curriculum. Since we don't have that many Nanticoke or Lenape trained teachers. And I would just like to throw in right now that one of the techniques for bringing voices forward is capacity building. If a people have been disempowered uh, for so long, it takes a lot of courage to come out and start telling your stories. Um, at one time, you're punished for believing all life is sacred, and now you're asked to come and hurry up and solve the environmental problems of the world. You know, <laughs> it's a lot to ask. So, how do we do the capacity building required for bringing the next generation of teachers? from our original people into our school systems? What are the missing links for their ability to step into positions of authority on boards of directors and in decision-making on how the government uh, teaches about them themselves? So I really am excited to be working on a grant with Healthy Communities Delaware to learn how to build that capacity and develop leadership skills among our indigenous people. And in our cultural mapping project, I'll just say one more thing real quickly. We delved into the stories and oral histories asking, especially what were the food ways of your ancestors? What stories do you know about their art forms or their life's work? And then we pursued those clues. 
And we've found many student interns who like to do their research projects with us to follow the trail of some of those um, bits of information. And we really are on a treasure hunt. And our Lenape Forest Garden is an edible forest garden where we teach indigenous food ways and make food that the original people would have eaten and uh, share about the stories of living locally. Now, how does that influence our future civics education? Living locally is good for the environment, the economy, and democracy. So, so with that, I'll turn the microphone uh, over to you. What's well, funny because you actually went in a direction I wanted to go into anyway, which is the idea of the importance of, of personal stories and that, you know, it, it's one thing to kind of like have academics or others kind of, you know, build a map and, and of, of a story and, and, and share it with people. Uh, but how important is it to have those personal stories? And I think within you kind of touched on a little bit of what the importance is. Um, but I guess what I'm going to follow up is like, you know, what would you say to someone who says, well, I'm just, you know, why is my story important? I'm just an average person. Um, you know, why would people be interested in my story? Because uh, it sounds like you, you've kind of tapped into that a little bit. And then Hanif, I'll let you, you follow up on that. Well, I can give you a great example. I was just, I do a little bit of social um, media to build momentum and to find more direct descendants of the community, reconnect the cousins, have more family reunions. And one of the people literally in their profile, it says, I'm nobody special. And, and I feel like that person is so special. That person is a direct descendant of the patriarch of the village of Fork Branch, the oldest grave in that cemetery. And his, his stories of his relatives define the federal census district. And, and I just long for the stories to come forward. They're so rich. And, and this particular people group has survived so many pandemics. <laughs> you know, they, they're good at it. And we forget to ask, how did you survive these pandemics? You know, when you, Europeans first came, um, I think 85% of the Lenape people died from a combination of violence and pestilence, pandemic, smallpox. They had no immunity to those European things. And um, if they went in the sweat lodge to cleanse themselves, you know, that's, that's considered a cleansing process for people who are sick. They were passing the smallpox on to their relatives in the sweat lodge. So just asking these people who survived every 15 years, another pandemic, um, so much genocide, so much cultural genocide. How did they survive? They're amazing, resilient people. And they have kept their bloodlines documented. If you hang out with any of the um, original people of our region, they love ancestry long before there ever was an ancestry.com. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, knowing your family is part of resilience. And knowing your land, knowing your place, knowing your water is the localization of our identity. I believe that the future of civics education is localization. So when we know our families and we know our roots and we know the waterways we depend on and the foodways we depend on locally, we pollute less. We feel more secure. So resilience is demonstrated 
by these indigenous communities who have survived so much. And, and I'm honored to be in awe of these families. And I am honored to serve as a liaison to all the resources available to us in this state. So making those resources available is a key also to resilience. Hanif, how about on, on your end, you, how important are telling these personal stories to build that history, uh, to build that knowledge base? And what would you just say to someone who, who says, you know, why would anybody be interested in my story? Uh, I'm just kind of an average person. Yeah, I think sharing personal stories is very important because, you know, as a people, everybody, we don't know what we don't know, right? Just by Ruthann sharing some of the stories of the native tribes um, I didn't know before today. So, and I think it's even more effective. Rufan has done a good job, but if I was to hear somebody from the Lenape tribe share a personal experience or a family story that they know, that would be even more impactful and engage, even gauge my interest possibly in seeing how I could help them in their fight for equality, because I firmly believe that everyone deserves equality. This is supposed to be America, you know, home of the brave and land of the free, the place for opportunity, right? And for somebody who says, you know, I'm just a regular person or I'm nobody, why would anybody want to hear my story? I'm just a regular person. I say it every day. I'm just a regular guy from Wilmington, Delaware. But when I share my story of how I made a mistake, but then was caught up in the cycle of recidivism, you know, and caught up in our poor system of probation that we have in Delaware when I share that. Now people are interested in finding solutions to how we fix our broken probation system. People are interested in maybe volunteering our time or providing resources to see how we can improve our justice system and come about with reforms, right? That's one of the things I love about working for the ACLU of Delaware because although we have many issues, from smart justice to reproductive rights to immigrants' rights, you know, to education equality, you know, LGBTQI uh, issues. We address all of those, but one of the things that we try to do in any issue that we're addressing is center the voices of impacted people. We try to elevate their voices, tell their stories, and get their ideas of what the solutions are to uh, uh, fix their issues or to bring them a peace of mind or a sense of equality so that we could be better informed and we can be guided on what we're doing. So often in Delaware, without listening to these individual stories, we go into these think tanks and brainstorming sessions to try to come up with ideas and solutions to help people when we never even took the time to listen to one person from that impacted population. So it's very important to help people understand the, the trials and tribulations that they're going through. And he, since we talked about education a lot, is it important for young people, students to hear those personal stories to engage them more? Yes, but I think we have to uh, uh, do a better job at investing in our young people and encouraging our young people and telling them why it is important for them to communicate and share their stories. I could remember as a young guy that, you know, a lot of the elders that I would come in contact with, 
no matter what race or religion would just emphasize that I was the future. The children are our future. And I could do a better job at that, but I just think as adults and as a community, we're not doing a good enough job of letting the children know that they are the future, letting them know that their brains are some of the greatest brains of people who've existed on this earth and start pulling that uh, 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 information and, and that talent and that wisdom out of our youth. So I started this conversation talking about how incomplete Delaware's story is, and we've talked a little bit about that and, and the impact of it and, and the importance of hearing these stories. I want to finish by asking how optimistic are each of you that we are starting to see more of these stories told and that people are, more importantly, willing to hear them and kind of make them part of their lives. I can yeah, I can definitely attest to the optimism and the open doors right now. I think there's a, a, a missing link that I hope to address with capacity building opportunities because sometimes the disadvantaged don't hear that there are open doors now, that change is happening. So your, your radio show definitely does help people with that. And I want to thank, um, I want to thank you very much. But I think that one of the great examples right now is the Delaware Art Museum creating a storytelling workshop for indigenous people to learn to tell their stories more effectively. They're having uh, photo displays right now of the faces of indigeneity across Wilmington, but they're also going to be including the tribal communities next. And those storytelling workshops are part of capacity building. It's not just an art form that a few grandmothers will participate in. It's all of us learning to share our stories. And then again, I have to just give a plug for Delaware uh, Humanities because I did apply to their Speakers Bureau and I'm learning to create um, an opportunity to tell my story of how I found out about my uh, Lenape grandmother because she was raised never to talk about it. And then what it was like to learn how to be a good citizen of Lenape Hoking in the eyes of the original people. Like if my grandmother were free to say, what is a good citizen? What would that sound like? How different would it be than what is a good citizen from, you know, a governmental perspective or from a new immigrant perspective? Her stories are powerful for me. So I'm learning how to tell my story of how I became interested in good citizens through indigenous eyes and how that includes being good to all our relations which includes the trees who give us the breath to continue on every day and the rivers we relate to our rivers and our waterways we are part water so they're all our relations all living things we relate to and as I learn how to be a good citizen where all our relations are honored that's a new worldview for me, and I'm excited to learn from an ancient way how to live in a new way. And if how about you, what is your optimism for seeing these stories being told more now and, and, whether, and whether people are willing to hear them more now, perhaps, than they were before? So I am thankful that we have advanced 
uh, uh, more. We, we're in a better place now than we were in the past as far as allowing people to share. But um, I am not too optimistic that storytelling and embracing other people's stories and cultures will ever get mainstream in Delaware. I think what Delaware Humanities is doing is awesome. Tom, I think you have a great show and you're definitely playing your part. I have been to the Delaware Art Museum, not even for some of the uh, uh, indigenous uh, storytelling they're doing, but they also have been amazing. We're working with uh, people like Richard Raw and highlighting ancient African traditions. So the Delaware Art Museum is doing great things. But until we can truly disrupt the Delaware way, I don't think this will ever become mainstream. I, I think Ruthann's calling it capacity, and I'm calling it mainstream, right? We have a lot of great things going on in certain pockets, and I'm thankful that people are entertaining this, but I'm not too optimistic on what it would take for this to go mainstream or if there's a desire to, because when there's a desire to do things in Delaware, capacity isn't an issue, funding isn't an issue, right? And then to, to close um, my perspective on this, I think uh, the most recent pandemic has helped us to have platforms to share other stories. Between the pandemic and the national uprisings we've seen due to the George Floyd incidents, it forced our, our nation and our state to say, hold on, we have to recognize, we have to give disadvantaged populations a platform to relieve some of this trauma. We have to provide services for equality. And while that hasn't just been targeted to black and brown people, I think disadvantaged people as a whole have been able to take advantage of new resources due to the abundance of resources that was released due to the pandemic. Had it not been for the pandemic, I don't know that we'd see so much storytelling and so many opportunities to even share these diverse stories. I agree. I agree. Ruth Ann Purchase, director and co-founder of the Lenape Land Trust, and Hanif Salam, manager of the ACLU of Delaware's Campaign for Smart Justice. I want to thank both of you for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. We really appreciate your time and your insight in this conversation. Wanishi, wanishi. Thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A More Perfect Union podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.